Welcome back to another edition of On the Record, the Daily Iowans weekly news podcast where we break down the paper's top headlines from the week. I'm your host and co-producer, Eleanor Hildebrandt, and I'm here with our co-producer, Haley Marks. On today's episode, we have four special guests. We will be chatting with Daily Iowan news reporter, Caitlin Crome, and politics reporters, Natalie Dunlap and Brian Grace. We will also check in with Caleb McCullough, the DI's 2021-2022 executive editor on his history at the Daily Iowan and his future goals for the paper. Whether you're in the car, at home, or in the classroom, we'd like to welcome you to this Friday, March 12th edition of On the Record. I'm Haley Marks, On the Record's co-producer, and here are this week's headlines. On Wednesday, the Daily Iowan reported six new cases of COVID-19 on the University of Iowa's campus. As of March 10th, five additional students and one employee self-reported cases of COVID since Monday, March 9th. As of Wednesday, there have been 3,476 positive coronavirus cases since students returned to campus in August. On Monday's print edition, the DI published a story about University of Iowa professor Patrick Schlievert publishing a book about how toxic shock syndrome made its way into the public eye in 1980 and his more recent research on the condition. Iowans with pre-existing health conditions became eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccination on March 8th. Individuals 64 years old and younger with medical conditions that may cause increased risk for COVID can get their vaccines alongside other members of Phase 1b. In a campus-wide update, the university announced that it will offer an in-person celebration for the class of 2021. The in-person celebration will be socially distanced and it will not replace the virtual graduation ceremony. The UI said a student and their party can attend both celebrations. On Tuesday, the DI reported on members of the Iowa City's Truth and Reconciliation Commission's leadership resigning this week. The commissioner and the newly approved commission facilitator resigned this past weekend following the resignation of the commission's former chairperson resigning earlier this month. University of Iowa Campus Health Officer Dan Fick told the UI Faculty Council on Tuesday that the vaccine rollout may be a little slower for the UI faculty than other universities due to faculty not being included in one of the state's priority groups currently eligible for the vaccine. The council also held updates on campus safety in the fall 2021 semester. In Wednesday's print edition, the Daily Iowan reported on the Iowa City Senior Center's Zoom trainings becoming a social hour for its members. What originally started as a method to support seniors in navigating new technology became a conversational hour for the class's regular attendees. In a campus-wide email on Wednesday, the University of Iowa announced additional funding will be available for students on March 15th thanks to the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund. Applications for the funding are available on MyUI. During her press conference on Wednesday morning, Governor Kim Reynolds announced her eighth executive order, the Governor's Child Care Task Force. The initiative will aim to expand and improve Iowa's child care availability after the pandemic only worsened the problem of child care shortages in Iowa. A U.S. committee will hold off on deciding whether to dismiss a contest for Iowa's second congressional district election and will consider the merits of Democrat Rita Hart's contest of the razor-thin election. The committee postponed its consideration of Representative Marionette Miller-Meek's motion to dismiss the contest. The U.S. House of Representatives approved a $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package on Wednesday afternoon for the final time. But one of the most contested amendments, a federal minimum wage increase to $15 per hour, won't be included as the bill travels to President Joe Biden's desk for a signature. On Thursday morning, the UI named Sarah Sanders as the permanent dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, removing the interim from her title. Sanders was appointed back in July 2020. 
The university also announced it will begin its search for a new faculty ombudsperson following Rachel Williams, the current faculty ombudsperson, announcing she will be stepping down at the end of this academic year. And on Thursday, the State Board of Regents lifted its travel ban, allowing students, faculty, and staff to resume travel outside of the United States. The ban was in place for nearly a year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can read all these stories and more in the Daily Iowans print editions on Mondays and Wednesdays or online anytime at dailyiowan.com. News reporter Caitlin Crome, who covers the Division of Student Life for the DI, wrote a story on Wednesday about University of Iowa graduate Kyra Say and her executive position at Bumble, a dating app created by women. Welcome, Caitlin. We're excited to have you on the podcast again. How's your week been? My week's been pretty good. Thank you. Good. And in your story, you wrote about Kyra Say, who's a former Hawkeye, and she now works at Bumble. But what did her time at the University of Iowa kind of look like? Yeah, during her college years, Kyra was a part of Iowa Edge. She joined and ran the chief diversity office. She also served as a co-captain for the Bollywood dance team called Iowa Andi, which I'm pretty sure still exists today. And she started her own student organization called Students Abolishing Slavery. And she also worked in the library all five years. Um, Kyra took a very different approach to her education. She actually had an interdepartmental studies major, which she said is code for she created her own, Um, but the university supported her through that. So she got a BA in social innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, She was definitely more focused on all the projects that she had going on in college than she was was with getting a job afterwards. Um, But days before graduation, she said that she was accepted into a position as the education service support at the Center for Diversity and Enrichment at the university. So that was really exciting for her. Yeah, well, she stayed stayed pretty busy there. And for the story, you actually got to speak with Kyra about her position and how she ended up working for this app. Can you tell us a little bit about her position and why she believes it's important to have women in executive positions on dating apps? Yeah, so her story on how she actually got in contact with them is really interesting. She just took um, a really bold move and contacted an executive on LinkedIn And she said that there were really no positions available at Bumble at the time that really suited what she could bring to the team. So she just pitched herself very briefly and said, these are my qualities. I would love to work with you. And then um, they sent her to an HR contact and she got the job. And the reason she loved Bumble so much is when she moved to Texas originally, she used a feature on the app called Bumble BFF to find all of her friends. So she always knew that this was a company she was very interested in. Currently, she's working there. Um, which is also a woman-founded company, like you said before, and it's located in Austin, Texas. And she is the director of social innovation and transformation, which um, going on theme with her major is also a position that she kind of somewhat created herself. Um, Her team works with a partnership model where they work with marketing, product, brand, customer experience, and all the executive leadership teams on a variety of projects, and they all work together to integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion, which lends to a lot of solutions and innovations for the app itself. Kyra said that this, said that they are a company that's pushing the boundaries and challenging bias and inequity within all of their apps, the dating sphere, and even technology, the technology industry itself. Um, She also mentioned how fun it is just to be working alongside women that are so passionate and committed to their work and to be next to some of the powerhouses that she gets to work next to at every day is just truly a dream. 
Yeah, well, that's that sounds like the perfect job for her. And you also spoke to a University of Iowa student who's the president of the student organization Women in Business, Lexi Noonan. What did she have to say about Say's position and the impact that it has on her and other women who want to be in the business world? Yeah, Lexi said that the one thing that really stood out to her about Bumble is that women leaders are so powerful. And this is a company that exemplifies that and that women in general just love supporting other women in their work. And she mentioned how Bumble is a great example of women that support each other and that work really well together to come together for a huge cause. And that's really inspiring for her and her work in her student organization, Women in Business here on campus. Yeah. And did Say have any advice or suggestions for young women like Noonan who are looking to get into business one day? One thing about Kyra is that she is one of the most inspirational people that I've spoken to. Like she just has the best advice. So she had a lot to give. And she said that she's very glad that she learned that one does not have to follow a clear path to be successful. She mentioned that all too often people assume that there's only space for a specialist or someone who has a very clear charted path. But if you hear that internal voice, whether that's in college or post-graduation, that's saying this is not it and that you want something else, she said that you should go after that. And Kyra also said that it's okay if the path is not already charted because you can chart that yourself because there's also space in the world for generalists too. And she said, you just have to believe in yourself in order to chase your dreams. Well, that's some pretty great advice there. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Caitlin, and sharing your story with us. Hopefully we can have you back on again sometime this semester. Yeah, thank you so much. Next up, we have DI Politics reporter Natalie Dunlap, who wrote a story this week about college students qualifying for stimulus checks once President Joe Biden signs the newest COVID-19 relief package. Welcome back to the studio, Natalie. We're delighted to have you on today. How is your semester going? Pretty well. I'm glad it's getting warmer outside. Yes, I'm enjoying the warm weather, too. And so your piece was on the $1.9 trillion stimulus package and how it actually includes college students in its proposal this time around. How is this package similar or different to other packages and how does it incorporate more students? Yeah, so there have been two other stimulus checks sent out in response to the pandemic. The first one gave eligible individual taxpayers $1,200 checks and the second one gave them $600 checks with joint filers receiving double the amount both times. And so off the bat, the bill has larger stimulus checks with single taxpayers being eligible for up to $1,400 and couples filing joint returns being eligible for up to $2,800. But there's also a big difference because it expands who qualifies as a dependent. So in this bill, dependents include 17-year-old children as well as adult dependents. Um, And so students younger than 24 fall under that, as well as elderly relatives, disabled individuals, children younger than 19, and children younger than 19. So households could receive an additional $1,400 per dependent. And obviously this bill will impact the entire country, but how do Iowa lawmakers in Washington feel about this legislation and its effect on their constituents back home in Iowa? So Representative Cindy Axney, the only Democrat in Iowa's delegation said she was happy that the definition of dependence was updated under this bill. She said as many Iowa students are studying remotely in their parents' home, including them as dependents more accurately reflects how they're living and studying. And she voted in favor of the bill and she was the only Iowa congressperson to do so because Iowa Republicans have voiced their opposition citing it as partisan or saying that it gives too much money to non-COVID related items. Yeah, and you actually spoke with a few students at Iowa Regents institutions about this stimulus package and what it means to them. 
What did they have to say about being included in this relief package? Yeah, so I talked to Caitlin Bradley, a second year student at the University of Iowa, and Jack Groepper, a second year student at Iowa State University. And Jack said that he was working at the Iowa State University Dining Hall in January of 2020, and then decided not to return to that job in the fall because he thought the risk of COVID wasn't worth the pay that he was getting. And then Caitlin said it was hard to find a job initially because of the pandemic when she moved out of her parents' house at the end of the summer, um, but she eventually found employment in November. So finding jobs or just like feeling safe at their jobs has been affected by the pandemic. And though the money of dependents will go directly to parents, um, they both said if they had access to stimulus money, they'd use it on things like paying off debt, paying for housing, car payments, groceries, and gas money. And alongside those students' opinions, you also interviewed Sarah Frank from the UI's Tippy College of Business about the economic impact that these checks will have once the money is in circulation. What did she have to say about this legislation and what this money will mean to students? Yeah, so she told me that stimulus checks have this kind of dual purpose of helping families who are struggling while also putting more money into the economy so people go out and spend it and that ends up supporting businesses who can pay their employees. And she said the pandemic has affected students pretty differently depending on their circumstances, but she knows students like Caitlin and Jack who have been have been having a, a hard time finding places to work during the pandemic. Yeah, well, thank you for coming on the podcast this week, Natalie. We can't wait to read more of your reporting in the DI in coming weeks. Thanks, Eleanor. Next, Brian Grace, a politics reporter for the DI, wrote two stories this week. On Monday, he covered the higher education bills that survived the Iowa legislature's March 5th legislative deadline. And on Wednesday, he wrote a piece about how the Iowa caucuses impact the state's economy and what it would mean to the states economically if the caucuses didn't happen in 2024. Welcome, Brian. We're excited to have you on the podcast this week. How's everything going? Good. How about you? I'm good. And so in your story on the Iowa legislature for Monday, you covered how lawmakers from the Iowa House and Senate are pushing for more legislation regarding state universities and which bills made it through the first legislative deadline. Can you tell us a little bit about this legislative deadline and how it affects the process moving forward? Yeah, so typically with each legislative session, members of Congress will start to introduce bills toward the beginning. And then what just happened on March 5th was the first funnel or what's known as the funnel, but it's kind of a deadline for bills to either make it through and continue on for possible floor action or kind of die off and fall off until maybe later years when members maybe want to bring them up again. So everything that passed will move forward, um, have more discussion, and, you know, it's that closer, it's that much closer to becoming law. Right. And so which higher education bills are moving forward and which ones did not pass through this March 5th funnel? So there's a bunch that made it through and, you know, a, a more, more so that didn't, but some of the ones that passed through were um, the bill to end tenure at Regent Universities. Um, another one to mandate Pledge of Allegiance uh, is done every day in public school systems, K through 12. And another one to regulate diversity and equity training at public universities. And a few of the ones that didn't pass through the deadline was um, one bill to pull public university professors on their political affiliation, and another one that restricts information from the New York Times 1619 project from being included in the school history curriculum. And you spoke with a few state legislators and a University of Iowa professor on these bills and how they will impact Iowans. What did they have to say about the legislation that made it through and the legislation that didn't? Yeah, so the common sentiment between university professors and 
Democratic members of Congress alike is that things like this tenure bill are really doing a lot of damage to public universities just by being talked about in the legislature. So um, tenure is something that universities rely on to kind of pull in staff members and faculty and professors. And especially for the University of Iowa, that can be a bit detrimental when the university is looking for a new president. Republican legislators, on the other hand, say that doing things like ending tenure is really important for free speech on campus for students, especially considering the past three incidents that um, all three public universities have kind of gone through with First Amendment issues. So uh, that's a big thing for Republicans that they feel like that's going to do a lot for First Amendment protection on campus. And, and you know, Democratic legislators and professors are kind of on the other side of that, saying that it's more harmful. Yeah, and you also had a story this week that was published on Wednesday about the cost of not holding the Iowa caucuses in the next presidential election. What type of revenue is brought in by the Iowa caucuses to the state and who would be impacted the most if the Iowa caucuses were potentially not held in the future? So from what I could tell from writing that story was that a lot of the income that the state sees is in the form of campaign spending on political ads, which is probably not surprising. So local broadcasts and TV stations get quite a bit of that. I think the report stated it was 105 million in the Des Moines Ames area that broadcast stations were bringing in. And, you know, aside from that, it's still important for local restaurants and businesses, maybe not nearly as much, but, you know, it does help them kind of hold over for especially those periods during the winter when maybe they don't get as much business. But in terms of, you know, the real, um, the real income, it's, it's much more on that on that side of broadcast and stuff. Yeah, and how would these losses impact the entire state's overall economy? So from, from what I did looking at the FEC campaign data, um, just in the month of January on 2020, leading up to the Iowa caucuses, they, the state brought in about on like 14% of their total GDP for that month um, just from campaign spending. So. You know, that's that's pretty significant, I think, in the in the scheme of things, although it is only for that month. So and, you know, the caucuses only happen every four years. It's, um, again, probably not huge in the scope of the annual income the state brings in, but, um, you know, big in that kind of time frame leading up to the caucuses. And you interviewed people from various sectors of Iowa in various economic areas. What did they have to say about the Iowa caucuses and its overall positive or negative coverage of the state? Most notably, I talked to David Yepsen, who was a former political columnist for the Des Moines Register, and he brought up something that some of the other sources didn't, which was um, the kind of appearance that Iowa gets sometimes during the caucuses is maybe not entirely positive. So he mentioned, you know, fitting into kind of when all these media outlets converge on the state for that period of time, um, you know, it's possible that maybe that brings out some of the more stereotypical um, views of, you know, what an Iowan is or how they behave. But on the other hand, um, you know, the Coxes are huge for Iowa businesses. And, you know, aside from just immediate economic impact, it just gives a media spotlight to a lot of places that normally are not used to it. Well, thank you for chatting with us today, Brian. We look forward to having you back sometime soon to chat with us about your stories. Thanks for having me.
And finally, we have Caleb McCullough, who will be the next executive editor of The Daily Island. Welcome back to the podcast, Caleb. It's been a while since we chatted. How's everything going? It's going good. I'm also feeling good with the warm weather, and I had some good news this week, so, so I'm feeling good. Yeah, speaking of that good news from this week, first, we here on the record wanted to congratulate you on being appointed as the next executive editor on Monday night. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, can you take us through what you've done at the DI over the past three years that you've been a member of the staff and what that's looked like? Yeah, I started as a freshman um, as a news reporter. I was doing kind of general assignment stuff, um, didn't have a really specific beat. Uh, I was also a designer that freshman year, um, designing pages for the newspaper. And then in my second semester, I started reporting on city council and city government stuff, um, doing a lot of that going to the city council meetings and kind of finding stories that way. Um, and then my sophomore year, I started as a politics reporter reporting on the uh, Iowa caucuses, which were gearing up um, in that fall of 2019. Um, and then I, uh, second semester there, about halfway through, I was made the assistant politics editor after the caucuses helped to get ready for the election, um, although that was still a while out. And then over the summer, I was the summer editor with Josie Fischels, who's now the arts editor. We were co-summer editors. So coordinating all of the coverage over the summer and the print papers, all of that. And then this fall, I was the politics editor with Julia Shanahan, the other politics editor. And then now this spring, I am um, one of the managing editors with Alexander Scores. So I've had a lot of, been jumping around a lot, but kind of a consistent, a lot of politics and a lot of government coverage, definitely. I had no idea that you were a designer ever. That's, that's an interesting fact. Didn't know that. No. What are you most excited about when it comes to being the head editor of the DI for the 2021-2022 academic year? Is there anything specifically that you're looking forward to covering or checking up with? Yeah, well, one of the big stories that's, um, you know, might not be, might be kind of settled down by the time next fall rolls around, but the, ne the next uh, University of Iowa president is gonna be, is in the process of being selected right now. So if, if that person is selected before fall, then obviously there's a great story of how are they going to be changing campus? How, how, is, um, how is their, I guess, new governor, gov governorship going to be um, making any changes on campus? Um, I'm excited to, continue to follow the COVID-19 story um, as vaccine rollout happens and hopefully things get um, more under control, what new uh, either benefits or problems start popping up out of that. On the newsroom side, I'm excited to just continue our, to expand and develop our coverage um, as you know, a really highly recognized paper. I, I'm excited to help develop some really good visually engaging stories and and guide our, I guess, newspaper as we continue to publish, um, I guess, change your publishing schedule twice weekly and just figure out with other editors and innovate on what that can mean for us and what we can do with that. So I think there's a lot of new ground that we're going to be covering next year and I'm excited to be uh, a part of that. Yeah, well, congratulations again on the new position. We can't wait to see all the wonderful things you will do next year. And hopefully we can have you on the podcast again to talk about some of your stories. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Follow The Daily Iowan on social media and check our website for breaking news updates and the latest COVID-19 related news. We'll be back next week with another edition of On the Record.